Hello, everyone. This is Ursula. Marcia and I are still on a short winter break, but we should be back by the end of the month with some new episodes. In the meantime, we're sharing an episode we recorded about a year ago about the Moroccan filmmaker and writer Ahmed Bouanani, whose work uh, is very unique and beautiful and whose life was quite tragic and intertwined in very interesting ways with the modern history of Morocco and whose traces were almost lost and uh, were only uh, almost quite miraculously recovered and saved and promoted uh, in recent years. So uh, we hope you enjoy this. And uh, also a quick reminder that uh, if you like Bulak, uh, it would be helpful if you would subscribe to it on whatever platform you listen to, uh, recommend it to others, and uh, rate the show also. So thank you and happy listening. Welcome, everyone, to episode 24 of the Bulak podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay, and with me is Marsha Links-Qualey. Hello, as always. Hi, Marsha. And um, we're going to be talking uh, from Rabat, Morocco, about uh, actually a Moroccan writer on this episode, uh, and, and filmmaker, I should say. Um, we're going to be talking about Ahmed Bouanani, uh, who is someone, I think, uh, who's very interesting and whose work is sort of... Getting Rediscovered, who has two new books uh, that have come out in English translation recently, and another book that is forthcoming for that will be published for the first time uh, in French. But so the, the books that have come out uh, recently are uh, The Hospital, which is really a, 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 his, his cult novel, the, the novel that he's most famous for. He's the only novel of his that was published in his lifetime. Right, yeah, uh, that's translated from the uh, French by uh, Laura Vernon. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then there's, a, I think, two of his poetry, because he, he published some poetry during his lifetime, two of his poetry collections have been combined and translated, or sort of put in the same collection and translated by Emma Ramadan, and uh, they've come out under the title The Shutters. Mm-hmm. So just, I mean, I'd like to start just the, the hospital I read in French several years ago because somebody recommended it. And um, did I, you know his films first or you knew the hospital first? I knew the hospital first because actually his films are quite hard to find, mm. uh, pretty much impossible. Uh, so the first thing that I heard about him was as the author of this novel um, there was also, and I didn't, I wasn't able to mention this in the piece that I wrote about him, uh, recently, but there was, there's a very, very good cultural and literary magazine out of Tangier called Nejma, and they had put together in 2014 or 15, a special issue that was entirely dedicated to him mm. that was edited by his daughter, Tuda Buanani. And that sort of told the whole story of his life and had all these samples of his work and his drawings and talked about his movies. And so that's probably the first thing that made me interested in him. Uh, but uh, and, and then I and then I got the novel, uh, which I found very good and quite difficult mm-hmm. to read. I mean, it's uh, I don't know. What did what what did you think of it? I mean, 
it's it's certainly not a straightforward novel, you know, it's sort of a beginning, middle, and an end. I'm not sure, uh, I mean, I read it in English. I read it in Laura's translation, uh, I spoke, I guess, last year when it came out, or it must have come out this year. Uh, well, 2018 is almost over, okay. so yeah, that's why it feels like last year. <laughs> right. um, and, I mean, certainly I found it uh, emotionally complex, difficult in the sense that it's got all these different landscapes going on at the same time. I mean, everything ha occurs inside the hospital, and yet there are so many different layers to what the hospital is. Um, and I did feel in, in some way I was working at a, a disadvantage once I, you, you, you uh, sent me these impossible to find films. Once I watched the films, I, I felt differently about, about the hospital after watching them. And I would like to reread it now, having seen his films. Um, I mean, certainly it's a, it's not a sort of a one sitting novel. Yeah, I feel like I read it like a couple pages at a time. Yeah, I mean it's in you know, like his poetry, which is it's uh, it's very dense and requires it really requires your attention in the way that some books don't. Yeah, and that it's um it's not that you don't see it's not that it's unclear on every page what's going on, but there's a sort of like density and kind of almost violence to the language where you kind of have to keep going over it. Right. Well, I, th I felt like from the films to the novel and also to the poems that the prim his primary, primary artistic sensibility was in some way poetic, um, interested in the language as the medium, interested in the image and the ways in which they're juxtaposed versus primarily interested in the narrative. Right. No, I agree. I, th I think that I think that's that's probably true. That he starts off with these very, with these lines, with mm. these images, um, and so maybe we should. So, so he himself was actually uh, had to spend six months in the military hospital, which is here on the on the road facing the ocean in Rabat, which is now this like dilapidated building. It totally looks like, <laughs> it totally fits the image he mm. describes here. And then almost two decades after he had, he was forced, he had tuberculosis and was forced to spend six months there, uh, sort of quarantined there. He published this novel that's set in a hospital, um, but where the hospital sort of stands in for the afterlife, for prison, for sort of all, all these metaphors. A mental hospital, all sorts of different hospitalizations that you can imagine into it. And I also, so now post-watching these films, imagined it as a sort of a present cut off from a past, a, a, way, of, a way of being imprisoned into an only presentism. Uh, and separated from memory and separated from the past. Yeah, I mean, there's a big concern with, like, not being remembered, I would say, is is what's very much... And many of the characters have amnesia, can't remember. Their previous lives are somewhat hazy to them, or or they remember it one way, and then they then that, that turns out not to be... They're not sure that that really happened. 
yeah, they they have sort of trouble connecting to their previous life. It feels, and people sort of can't find their way out right. of the hospital. It sort of feels like they're there forever. So, I mean, it has this like limbo afterlife sort of surreal quality. And also, I think they're very concerned though with like not being remembered. Like, I mean, there's there's multiple lines that sort of speak to that about sort of being erased and being forgotten, which he, I think, was concerned with as an artist. Mm-hmm. And we can maybe talk about why that is when we talk about the films. Um, that he sort of dealt with having his work erased and his legacy erased. And then right. that he thought colonialism and the new sort of the rupture of the new mm-hmm. state that was established in the 50s had erased a lot of Morocco's past or continued to erase a lot of what was going on there. Right. Both of them creating their own new beginnings in order to tell, you know, if you wanted, in order to describe a present, you have to decide where is the beginning and how you're going to structure your narrative. And both of them had decided on a relatively new place to begin from. So he doesn't address any of this explicitly in the hospital. We're sort of drawing on on other work, on interviews he's done, on his filmography. Should we get into the movies and then kind of return to the novel? Sure. Um, So I mean, because his, I think he always wrote, but he so he went and studied cinema and uh, yeah, that felt like uh, not knowing him very well, but that felt like that was his professional life. That was his real life. Was as a as a filmmaker. Although he says, I think at one point, one of the reasons that he got into cinema was because he wrote in French, and so he felt like he could never be a writer because to only he only wrote in French, mm-hmm. and I think he wanted a medium that could connect to more of Moroccan society than the French language, right? Uh, which you know remained sort of associated with colonialism and with the with the elite, and so. Yeah, so he studied film, and he came back to Morocco in the 1960s. So, like, uh, Morocco got independence in the 50s, and by 19, in the 1960s, it was Hassan II was in power. And he comes back in the mid-60s, like, the years of letter taking off. So it's a period of violent repression, escalating violent repression. And that's where he starts his career, and he's just there's there's like no filmmakers in Morocco. There's just this one national um, cinematography center where he gets a job because where else can you work? Mm-hmm. I don't think other people had equipment. I don't think there were private production companies. So, so he works for the state, um, and he's trying to make movies, and 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 very few of his movies get made, and very few of his movies survive. Right. Well, one that I really enjoyed, that really struck me the most, was this uh, one called Memoir 14. Um, But originally that was, I don't remember, a hundred odd minutes. And when he first showed it to the head of the the state-run cinema, uh, he was, you know, no, this part and this part and this part have to go. And it was a process of uh, continually cutting it down to what it is now, 24 minutes. Which, and I think that one you is actually, you can you find it on YouTube? Is it one of the ones, or do you have to have a password for the, for the video? I think that one you can find on YouTube. I think because it was restored and subtitled by a museum in Europe. Mm. So we can link to that one. Okay. So, yeah, it, it is, I think, publicly available. And also it's based on a poem. So maybe... Right, so mem- so that's the that's the poem that's actually cited in the 
in the movie. Right. And I think he wrote the poem first. And then he, I think this was a lot of his process with he would write a poem or he would write a story and then he would also make a film out of it. Right. Or with in it. A, in a very sort of contemporary, you know, film poems or poem films or however, whatever the proper word for it is. It like a, a popular, contemp- very contemporary art form. Well, and the story behind it is also that he was... Um, because they didn't like him and they didn't want him to make movies, they basically gave him this crap job of working in the basement in the archives right, at the right. CCCM. And then he had the colonial archives, all this film that had been shot of Morocco by the French authorities, and he started splicing it together to make this movie. Right. And as I understood from reading the introduction the, or something online, I can't remember, um, the... the uh, the archival material was originally shot in order to sort of just, you know, a, a, in a sort of triumphalist way. These guys were um, backwards and now we are coming to civilize them. And that he sort of used this same archival footage because it was sort of the only footage that was out there uh, in order to rewrite his own narrative about about Moroccan history. Of course, we only have now 24 minutes of of the whole piece, which is... Which is a pity, which is a theft, you know, that they... And apparently he was, for... not only was he forced to cut it out so that later we could restore it, but that he had to burn the uh, the parts that were cut out. Yeah, they they, perma- they permanently destroyed it to make sure. And I, like you say, I think he made the archives tell a different story, which is such a like, smart and interesting thing to have done. Like he took the exact same footage, and just by the way he put it together... And the sound, the, w- the sound of the wind, and right. the sort of triumphal militaristic sounds, and yeah, the way in which it's spliced together is yeah startling. And the other anecdote about that is that the the center of the... the head of the cinematography center, who was this, you know, uh, authoritarian administrator who hated him and his work and kept cutting it down probably the entire film would have been destroyed except that that guy oh, right. <laughs> was at the the birthday party for king hassan ii in Sherat in the early 70s when there was a coup attempt and nearly a hundred guests were shot dead and so although not hassan ii no he miraculously survived it really was quite extraordinary how he managed to uh, get away with his life, and and so 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 this administrator though was killed, and that's probably the only reason we have the fragment of the film that, right. that we do have, and it's hard to tell. I mean, clearly there was a collage logic to it from the beginning, but now it's hard to tell if that was made even more extreme by all the cuts that they forced on him, right? Like, yeah, I mean, the only way to watch it now is is a complete work of art on its own and yet of course it is it is only a fragment of what it what it was well I think he kept re-editing it like trying to make it tell but they made him cut a bunch of also was like all the footage of the reef republic and the so the 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 liberation movement that had taken place independently in northern Morocco um and that and that actually the the new Moroccan monarchy collaborated with in colonial powers in in putting down and then later minimizing um and what had been this like you know very powerful guerrilla movement and the first independent 
successful independent movement in northern Morocco. So all of that had to go. Right. And I, I, I don't remember the, the, how they wrote about it, but it seemed like that was the first. Now, we've got to cut all of that. And then he returned, and then they watched the film again. No, wait. No, these, are, these other moments have to go, too. I mean, there's still some fantastic, terrifying moments of uh, bizarre violence that, that it retains. Yeah. Uh, it, there are so many moments of you know, a camel being shot in the head by a soldier, um, to uh, cattle being tied together and then lifted up by a crane onto a boat, and the ways in which they struggle against each other. Um, you know, it was surely when it was shot, it was something of a workaday uh, image, uh, but the way in which he deploys it is terrifying. Um, and, and they wrote about him getting in trouble for, so that he was supposed to be filming um, heritage people doing handicrafts in a, in a village. And, and yet when he got there, there were soldiers with guns trained on the people who were doing the handicrafts. And he turned, of course, also to film the soldiers uh, who were, you know, who, who were training their weapons on, on the people doing the handicrafts. Um, and then I think that was also snipped out. Right. No, they didn't like that movie either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's only one feature-length film of his work. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. Okay. I just was hoping right. you'd okay. want to read a little bit of yes. the poem since we're talking about Memory 14. And this is uh, Emma Ramadan's translation, Memory 14, from The Shutters, published by New Directions. Memory 14. Happy is he whose memory rests in peace, whether the earth bears or does not bear, whether the streams flow with honey or blood, whether our gaze is blinded or cut off, our memory endures. May it regain the rhythm of our twenties. I remember the morning of maledictions, the city streets beaten to death, the sun among the empty books, and the houses from my bicycle, I remember. Now history shatters in the vertigo of blood. A tale arises with each step. Like a sordid vine, the song sets its foot on my chest, the leprous horseman, the snake asleep in a woman's warmth, the snake transformed into a silk belt. The thousand-year-old miracle, I remember. Now, now the forest advances, now the trees, to each its own name, its civil status, its genealogy, now the mountains, now the springs, the rivers, the oceans, now the deserts, stop at the bottom of the ramparts. No more song, no more history, no more apathy. The ancestors on the luggage racks, the ancestors light years away from my words. Now the wind and its companion, the tambourine. What about the wind and the tambourine? Now the sixty verses, three hundred thousand knives planted in flesh and blood. Now, now the fourteen generation learning curses. Okay, that's just part of it. Uh, that was beautiful reading. I feel like there was possibly a little bit of background noise from somebody yelling outside our window. I hope not, because <laughs> I thought you read that very beautifully. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of illusions in that. Like, actually, um, you know, Anadella Subin's 
introduction to that book, she parses some of the things in there which were not obvious to me. Like, I mean, she she says, and I that reference to the rhythm of the 20 of our 20s is to the 1920s is to the reef republic right um he's clearly very much writing with a lot of references to sort of like moroccan history and to things that are being and to his personal history because the reference to the this 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 moment where he's on his bicycle is a reference to the assassination of his own father right his father was shot right while he was riding his bicycle no, the, I think he came home on his bike okay. and found, because that sort okay. of image reoccurs again and again. His father was a policeman and he was killed and it, it may have been politically motivated. It was in this years of unrest before independence and sort of public officials were sometimes targeted, but it was never solved. Um, but so he kind of weaves these moments of like personal trauma and historical trauma. And it's all about, I think, you know, recovering these, these memories. So. And she also suggested 14 was the, uh, the Islamic year, the 14th century versus uh, the the 20th, you know, is, is the same as the 20th century. So there's a sort of dislocation in time or a not agreed upon time or time is an illusion. Time is, different things that you choose, uh, different beginnings that you choose. Yeah. I mean, ironically, so he's this author who's like very, very concerned from very early on with creating a kind of Moroccan art that bridges this chasm created by colonialism, bridges these like uh, purposeful silences imposed by this new authoritarian regime and and sort of tells the country its own story in a way that is creative that is sort of that that speaks to people I mean he has a quote about cinema where like you know all that Moroccan filmmakers want to do is like represent Moroccans in a way that they can recognize themselves on screen something like mm-hmm. that right mm-hmm. like reflect give reflect back an image so he's like very interested in his the heritage including like traditional arts traditional poetry uh um and sort of like incorporating that into something modern like these, these like almost avant-garde films that he makes but that are and this avant-garde poetry also but that is like you know that's formally very modern but then is like full of kind of references right uh to create a sort of moroccan uh it's a very it's a concern of like post-colonial i feel like that generation like 1960s and 70s post-colonial artists and he was part of the people who were involved in souffle magazine right so to to come up with a local idiom that's a creative idiom that's like authentic and local and speaks to people and modern but i think he was also then interested in the ways in which traditional stories were and traditional art forms and crafts were deployed in these uh, false, uh, you know, false pure ways. And, and then also the ways in which colonialism and then the tourist industry and sort of the industry of tradition intervened in them. There was a, um, also this interesting story, probably from Anadella's introduction, um, about uh, how he came across while he was shooting... Uh, a, a village where they danced in a particular way because this French ethnographer had come in and told, you know, t- he 
changed the way in which they traditionally danced in order to fit his research narrative, which was, you know, um, I'm sure <laughs> distressing and then also sort of fascinating for all the ways that it stands in for how colonialism operates. Right. So there had been this whole sort of uh, fascination with and manipulation of traditional arts and culture and documentation of, right, by, by, by the colonial powers and sort of reading of, which could sometimes be quite wrong and mm. intervention in and so on. But then that was like totally continued by the by the new Moroccan regime, which which continued a lot of colonial processes and which sort of decided to make itself uh, the representative of both modernity and tradition right. and 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 this what they the word they use in French a lot often is is folklorisation turning your right. culture into folklore for tourists but also for other purposes um to sort of use traditional culture as a as a rhetorical device in your construction of your authority really right and I think he's 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 critiquing that a lot too. That sort of sapped of its genuine genuine meaning, and also of the sort of freedom that could sometimes be found in it, and just turned into right, like the writing decor. and rewriting of it. The the weird stuff that happens at the edges. Yeah, instead it's turned into something sort of sanitized and distanced, also from from people's real lives. Yeah. And then ironically, he's so concerned, like, as an artist with, like, the past and historical memory and, and this kind of stuff. And then his own work is, like, nearly obliterated. Like, right. Like, for reasons both having to do with censorship and then also his personal story of his his daughter's death and then the fire that happens in the family home. And what the fire was in 2009 right close to the end of his life i think it was a bit earlier than that okay um but uh yeah so he has the family apartment is actually about a 10 minute walk from here mm. and um so they, so they lived in rabat him and his wife naima al saudi who was uh, a costume designer and a lifelong collaborator of his on on all his films and his two daughters uh Batul and Tuda, who both worked in the films, and Tuda is the only surviving member of the family today, and she's sort of the uh, the person who's put a, a huge effort into into safeguarding and restoring and reviving his work, uh, and she's a visual artist herself. So they lived in this apartment nearby, and there was this fire in the early two thousands, I think, okay. that. Uh, that wiped out a bunch of because the apartment was full of like his writing and the right. props from the movies and film canisters and all this stuff. There was some film that Tuda shot from the apartment after the fire, and it was just sort of devastation of the windows being shattered in and metal being twisted. So it was it was not sort of a small house fire; it was a real raging fire, and yet so much was rescued from it. Right, so that's actually what's amazing because I've gone over there and you're and 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 we literally kind of joked about the fact that, like, how much stuff was there to begin with? Like, if the fire has left this much, because actually there's still, 
a huge amount of I mean and there was a big salvage effort done mm. by 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 Naima by uh Buenani's wife and and other friends and people who like took everything up and dried pages in the sun and like mm. recollated work and Tuda has spent years kind of putting uh, reconstituting texts uh, because things were both burnt and then soaked right. when the firemen arrived. But the apartment is full now of, I mean, you, it, it's, it's this actually really lovely space that I think, you know, people who are interested in his work uh, can, uh, can have often the opportunity to visit if they, if they contact uh, Tuda Buenani. And because, you know, there's, um, you can see, like I said, you know, you can see all the notebooks. He had this like lovely, very graceful kind of schoolboy handwriting, and he wrote right. out everything yeah. by hand. You can look. I saw the original. And a lot of drawings, sketchings, in, in a way, you know, um, like um, scenography, like um, the design of how the movie was yes. going to be. Yeah, yeah, he wrote like scripts with I don't know what you call that, but sort of um, where he's blocking out the scenes and he's drawing them too. It's right. not just it's not just verbal descriptions. Right. There's little yeah, um, uh, yeah. I guess I saw the first draft of the hospital and the second draft right. of the hospital, and um, but it seems like there's an amazing amount of work yet to be done in terms of reading through these the novels that still exist. Uh, that right. haven't been published yet, right? So he wrote a lot and didn't publish very much, um, and I and I and I'm and I guess I sort of asked why I asked Tuta why she thought her father didn't publish very much, and she said he kind of was just discouraged by the overall conditions for I think. For publishing, like, you know, he wrote The Hospital, and I think it was appreciated, but it didn't have a wide readership, and it didn't have a wide distribution, and uh, he just kind of wrote for himself. Right. Well, if you, I mean, I was just imagining this boy who describes himself as writing on his notebook at 15, I want to be Victor Hugo or nothing. Right. And then to release a book that you see as a masterpiece, because it is a masterpiece, and, um, and to have a fairly small reception of it, I can imagine the disappointment would be aching. But I don't think that he would, that this means he would not want his other novels published now. No, and if you, I mean, there's this quite lovely documentary film that was made where a filmmaker called Ali Safi went to find him in the last decade of his life mm. and, and, and interviewed him and Ali had sort of come across his films and sort of been like, who is this guy? Where is he? And he has a, he, in the, in the interviews too, like he's not bitter, he's melancholy, but there's a lot of humor. Um, he seems really likable. Like I was from the very beginning, everything I've read of his, that journal entry from when he's 15, like right. the, the films, the interviews, he's, I find a very, um, just charming person and voice like I found his story very kind of tragic like there's these tragic elements to it and but also he, he seems very appealing as a person as a, as an artist and um so he what in the interviews he's not like angry at like not having gotten mm -hmm. recognition mm -hmm. he's kind of like He's kind of sad and sort of like amused at his own sadness. Right, right. And he definitely seemed amused at himself at age 15 for having writ written this. And yet, you know, understanding why he wrote this at 15, you know, not, not angry, you know, not distressed in any way. 
Yeah, I, I mean, um, but so, so I mean, so his work is, is, his films are censored. Then some of his other films, like other people take credit, he tried to create an independent film collective. They made one movie with one, of, they were supposed to take turns direct to movies. Like one guy made his movie and then he like gave nobody else credit and then he like left the collective. Like he was forced in other instances not to put his name on the movie. So very little of his work came out, very little of it uh, then was accessible. Like, so these movies we're talking about, some of them, the only way we can get them is to have like password links and somebody has access because they belong to the National Cinematography Center. Ah, uh, okay. And they are the ones with the uh, authority. To like, give permission. They were produced mm. by it. And so the one feature film he made, the Le Mirage, belongs to to them. So, I see. So they do show it now and then, but it's not easy. Right. The one, the thing that most struck me about The Mirage is, um, so I don't watch a lot of avant-garde cinema. Oh, I do all the time. Every, I'm at avant-garde <laughs> cinema festivals every night. Um, I guess and what avant-garde cinema I have watched, I don't know. This was had such a sort of light sense of humor to it and that there was uh were these really funny moments um you know about the donkey in the cemetery and uh i you know i even just the the whole conceit of him finding the this these uh us dollars in the in the bag of flour and then going to try and exchange them in the city. And it being a big problem, because, like, how could this poor guy, the main protagonist, sort of justify the bank, fact that right. he's found a bunch of dollars? And, yeah. To me, I so stylistically, it reminds me a little bit of, like, um, uh, after-war, like, 1960s Italian cinema. Mm. Right? So it's shot in black and white, even even though by then people were starting to shoot in color, and... It has, it has a slightly Fellini-esque quality to it, like early yes, Fellini, yeah. you know? It's, it's, it's sort of poetic, there's a bit of humor, it's also sort of lyrical and serious and serious artistically, right? Right. Um, and, and it's kind of surreal, like, also, like, it sort of... It's, the, it's very surreal. Yeah. There are all sorts of moments where we're, like, off with... Um, Ali, what, who is like a trickster kind of character, uh, and and yet he's an extremely simple. He's not tricking us. He's not. He's not the negative a negative character at all. This trickster character, he's actually a positive character. Um, and I mean, even though in, in the end, I guess there really is no money. In in the end, you know, this this car drives up, and he, you know, when they're on the beach right there at the end, mm -hmm. and the car with the very extremely wealthy looking people with the masks on drives up, you know, scorning them uh, in, you know, in their traditional clothes and standing on the beach, shivering in front of a fire. They, you know, they don't make it, you know, they're still this, you know, they don't make it into that class. Well, it's a mirage. Right. Right. I mean, there's, yeah, it's. Although the original title was supposed to be, the man with some money, or no? The original title was 
some dollars from Mohammed. Oh, some dollars from Mohammed. That's why it was. <laughs> and bec- and then they and they and the only thing they censored was the title because they thought that Mohammed was a reference could be interpreted as a reference to the prophet or In the king. I is my understanding. Well, he wasn't king then, though. Right, but oh, I guess the pre- oh, I don't know. I mean, but. What it was is he had an it was it was based again on a novel on a huge novel that right. he wrote and rewrote over the course of I think many years. It's based on his uncle whose name was Muhammad. So it's his uncle who is right. this figure also in the family, and he and he occurs a little bit in the poems I think of this guy who sort of constantly um, uh, sort of vagabond, you know, adventurer, uh, you know, constantly failing in fact to like succeed in in these in these terms uh so i mean it'd be it'd be great i'm very interested to read that novel i'm very interested to read this he he also wrote a a history of moroccan cinema that's going to be coming out uh soon as i understand in french at least here uh and uh i've read like one excerpt of it where he talks about the like these homemade movies made by this guy who got obsessed with cinema in the 1930s. But it talks about all film made in Morocco, so it looks fantastic. Yeah, I'm. Uh, this I I saw there was a reference to the guy who is making homemade films and sort of mixing blood on his own and and shooting these films as the sort of origin of Moroccan cinema, and it seems you know very charming and. Uh, you know, poetic and narrative about the landscape of Moroccan cinema and sort of directly political, I think, in a way that his other narratives are not. So I'd be fascinated to see what he does with sort of a nonfiction genre. Yeah, I mean, I think he talks about also, I mean, of course, a lot of the early cinema in Morocco was was done by foreigners, and it's not that he doesn't consider that, he considers that all to be Moroccan Mm. cinema. Um, but I, for my, all I've seen is like the chapter headings and they do like, they're, 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 all of them have a comment. Like, it's not just like, like he's clearly interpreting, he's going to interpret the history. He's going to, he's going to say a lot about it. Like he does about this amateur filmographer who basically was enamored with cinema and would go out and like reenact action movies from the 1930s with his friends and then like try to make up chemicals because he didn't know how you know yeah these are these are great stories like that um so I think you know he's we're gonna see his work has been completely brought back from the brink of forgetfulness Mm. it's not gonna disappear it is gonna very much remain I mean I don't I don't think he's very widely read here but also the hospital was then translated into Arabic. Right. Although that was, when was that? Recently. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in recent years. Right. Uh, I think, I think after it was republished in French uh, by, by, I think, Dar al-Mamun, uh, the right. li- library and publishing house, then it was also then translated into Arabic. Um yeah, I I had read maybe in one of the introductions that Omar Barada sort of shepherded it into Arabic. Yes, but he's uh, um, I I I can't remember who the translator I is. I don't though. remember the translator either. It's um, someone famous. Okay, well, someone we'll, very good. We'll put uh, it in the show notes. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. So so it's also even re- you know I think I think his 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 work won't be completely. Uh, 
lost, as it seemed at risk of being at one point. Right. Well, there was even I, when I was so when I was looking through materials, there was even a piece in the Monde from 2016, which was saying, "Ha, ah, we've rediscovered." So it was very recently, even in French, that people were able to claim hey, we have just discovered this, you know, cult figure who was in danger of being lost. Right, well, because the hospitals is published in French in 1990 here, and then I basically went out of circulation. His mm. poetry also went out of circulation, and it really was this uh, translation and publishing center in Marrakesh that when where they reissued it, the French edition, and then they commit. I think they. I think I don't want to speak. They were involved in the translation into Arabic, and that was I think in the last decade, and that brought it back to people's attention. There's been this sort of like little cult following of people who have like, you know, Omar Barada, but also Ali Asafi, this filmmaker, who've like right. gone digging for him and and just been really. And then his daughter, who I think has done this incredibly, really moving project of really loving project of like maintaining his work and you know she's made it her work mm. I mean she she's well, it does kind of dovetail with her visual I mean I so I've only seen her Burak um visual pieces but he was also so and then uh, her mother painted this set piece of Burak for the film and he also has this broth in his poetry as a theme. Right. I mean, so maybe we should explain to people what El Burak is for oh, those okay. who don't know. All right. You do it. You're better than me. <laughs> no, my, my Islamic <laughs> theology is not that strong. So, really. Okay, so she's a flying horse. Horse that carries uh, Muhammad up to heaven, in, through the heavens, in order to talk with uh, God. And she does this so fast that she knocks over a glass of water on the way to... I think it's to... like a jug of water. Okay. Uh, as she's going up and then at, on the way back down, it's so quick that uh, it's caught before... He catches it before it spills. And, and I mean, so so Bonani, I, we sort of forgot to remember, he was also... He, he drew. I mean, right. he didn't consider that to be... A, or he Again, he didn't promote that work hardly at all, but he did these lovely drawings. And one of them is this portrait of of al-Burak and the prophet on her and he was sort of I think he that that image spoke to him that figure spoke to him a lot right as as something sort of as 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 being a female figure within the religious canon as being this sort of magical figure mm -hmm. right uh uh, it's sort of poetic again figure um so and then and then and then Tuda I think has reworked that image although I don't think it's publicly available yet maybe we can find some reproduction of it online I'm not sure okay. it's very pretty yes yeah I mean it's a it's a wonderful you know the images of sort of angels and other things can be drained of visual significance in so many ways, you know, distancing ourselves to make religion into this sort of author authority figure um, where angels are just ephemeral. We, you can't picture them or, or they're, you know, dressed in white in a very boring way. But Burak is this beautiful, magical horse figure. I, I mean, I 100% see the appeal. It's also, there's something also, um, I think, that appeals also because it's, it goes against the grain of a lot of like 
religious orthodoxy. So although it is it is present in the Quran, I, I would say it's a kind of, it's a figure that I wouldn't say male religious scholars have been somewhat uncomfortable with, right? And that... I don't know. I'm not, I, my theology is very weak. I, 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 my impression is that is that there's something... And in fact, he, of course, he depicted the prophet himself on the right, horse. It's right. not that he didn't try to publish this image. So, you know, he wasn't trying, I think, to be like no, super subversive. No, this wasn't a Charlie Hebdo kind of uh, thing. But I think it spoke to him. And I think also the fact that it's a, fe- you know, a feminine figure. And I mean, I think it's clear from his writing that he was very critical of traditional religious education mm-hmm. and of sort of the way religious authority was deployed in Moroccan society often to right. kind of just browbeat people into submission. Right. I mean, I, it's not something that he sort of emphasizes, but it comes up more than once in both the poems and the and the novel. Yeah. I mean, the I think there's a sort of a general anti-authoritarianism in his oeuvre, uh, and, and these extend to... Religious authorities, political authorities, uh, both colonial and uh, royal. Yeah, I mean, one thing in the hospital to to, to sort of find is is the language itself. I feel like is anti because the language mm. is so dirty. Yeah, like the dialogue yes. is like very, you know. I mean, people talk about shit all the time, mm. and like. It, it's it's very physical. It's very it's like all you know all these people are sick, so it sort of talks about their bodies and how mm. gross their bodies are, yeah. and they themselves it's and their language are really scatological and sexual at the same time. In, in this way that you know, um, there's certainly a strain of Arabic literature that is scatological and sexual. Yeah, and in a, in in that way, do you find that in that way that's also sort of like dis, kind of disrespectful of authority? Yes, yeah, I do. So what I find quite good about his book is that his language, like he 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 spoke and wrote an absolutely phenomenal French. Like his 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 mastery of the language is very impressive. And then he, but he kind of alternates this high and low in the book quite seamlessly between the sort of uh, you know uncouth language of a lot of the other people in the hospital many of whom don't come from aren't even educated or or literate people and then the narrator's sort of inner monologue which is uh extremely articulate i right. would say right and a lot of humor comes from the juxtaposition of high and low right yeah yeah, and I think also it kind of weaves the two together. Like, he's making a political point. He's making a political point by including those voices, right? And by not softening them at all. Uh, right. And by not condescending to them. Uh, you know, that, like, you know, these are the people that make up the, you know, that this is who we all, this is who we are, too. Right. And we're, and, and we're not sick, really. There's nothing wrong with us. You've made us sick, I think, is, is part of the... Right, you've pathologized us. Yeah, yeah. There's or something about... Something sick, something's ill overall, mm. in, something's rotten. Right. But it's not the these people's... Denmark, but right. it's... Yes. It is not us. It is the construction of the question. It's the way the frame is laid. Yeah, it's a very dense and very, 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 very interesting book, I think. 
And it also fits into, like, Moroccan literature. I mean, it's sort of, like, slightly leads into some of the prison literature that's going to come. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then it's also, you know, has the kind of really violent tone that you see from some of the, like, first novels to come out post-independence that are sort of about the rupture. I'm thinking about... Um, Le Passé Simple, which I don't know how you, what the title is in English, by Dries Scheibe, which is sort of these stories of, like, the emancipation of this of the younger generation from the older generation and that are very virulent in mm-hmm. tone. I think that's a quality to, like, a lot of the writing of that period is, like, it's very... I mean, because it was such a violent, dark time. Mm. Yeah, it was needing to pull itself away from a... a- all sorts of previous times, sort of the parental authority and the uh, societal authority and the colonial authority, sort of a wrenching. And not being allowed to. And thinking, like, that generation thought that they were going to be liberated and emancipated. Right. And then, like, and then the state coming down on you like a ton of bricks and none of the things that you thought were going to happen, none of the forms of freedom that you dreamt of actually coming to be um i think i've talked myself out on buenani i don't have anything more to say about him i mean i i i very much enjoyed discovering him and and uh yeah i just would say that the hospital is one of those rare novels that i am looking forward to reading it again so now i've watched the films now i feel i have a different sense of his overall project as an artist and now i want to read it again and I'm going to imagine it now as a movie, too. It all complements each, mm. each other. And he is, I think, I'll say he's one of those artists where, like, knowing his life story really does quite enrich your sense of the work. Yes, definitely. And, you know, and luck, you know, as opposed to sometimes, sometimes, it, sometimes you read someone's life story and you're like, oh, no, they're a terrible <laughs> asshole. And... <laughs> And now they ruined their books for right, me. Right, like now my reading is more complex in this terribly disappointed way. Mm. Um, or like, you know, it doesn't really add much. Like the the writer is a cipher kind of. Right. Or, you right. know, the work remains sort of not particularly illuminated by the life and vice versa. I think... I think sort of getting a fuller picture of, of, of what he did in the times he lived in does enrich your reading of of, of, all, of all of his work. Yeah, and even... So I'm surprised after... So I, I watched this movie, um, Memory 14, first. And then I found out that it had been a full-length film and then it had been cut to pieces. But it doesn't... Actually, it does not reduce my enjoyment of what what still exists. But for me, knowing that it was a full-length movie does reduce my enjoyment because I'm mad. No, you're that, mad. Like, <laughs> I'm like, but it was probably really great and... I would like to see the whole hour and 10 minutes. Yes, like, I definitely would like to see the whole hour and 10 minutes. And we never will. They they really uh they did stab us in the back there. Yeah, no, they got they got that. They won that one. Mm-hmm. Like and all the films that he would have liked to make and didn't get a chance to make. It's I mean, his it's also quite sad story about someone who is clearly like very genuinely creative and like super committed to not just to the creative life, but to like the sort of to giving something creatively right to his country and who was 
so unappreciated and, and should have been the foundation of all sorts of new crazy art forms that should have flourished after, you know in the yeah. wake of everything that and building on all the things that he did and maybe still will i mean i don't know as the things that Tuda comes up with out of the apartment are published maybe yeah. it lives again yeah i think one of the challenges um for for her is to figure out what to do with the archive, with this pretty significant, I think, archive that she has of all his manuscripts, I think also, like, photos, you know, um, his drawings, so all these objects, objects also created by her mother, by her sister, by herself, like, where to, what to do with them? Like, it's also this big responsibility, sort of, right now, the the apartment is functioning as a kind of mini library right. museum, and she's understandably, like, not interested in donating them to, like, a national Moroccan institution because of the history of those institutions, like, destroying or ignoring her father's work. So <laughs> sure, she doesn't or limiting, trust... limiting access to it as right. well. Even simply the limited access is a, right. is a form of censorship. And at the same time, I think that... that she would prefer that it be available in Morocco to Moroccans, right? Absolutely. So she does also, it's like, so your options are hand these things over to a national library that may or may not take good care of them, you know, sh show them properly, give access and so on, or what, donate them to like a foreign institution so that people here will have... Also not have access to them. yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the first thing is everything should be digitized, and I think yes. that's uh, that's sort of on the horizon. Um, to that is actually in this day and age a partial solution to these kind of quandaries. Yeah, that would be fantastic to have every page sort of scanned and available online, and then it's widely available. Yeah, in a semi-permanent form. Obviously, you still care about the original objects themselves. It would be lovely to have a beautiful home for them as well. But at least if it is not completely fallen away. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just a question of resources for that kind of thing. Like, it takes a really right. long yes. time to do it. Right. And then, yeah, and then the objects do. I mean, there's something to touching something that somebody made that's very moving. Also, he, if you, <laughs> when you see the notebooks... He he wrote. He almost never rewrote. Like he wrote, all in one, right, flowing, seamless, right, perfect handwritten, right. Like there are very few spots where he sort of like scratches out and rewrites. Mm -hmm. So he clearly kind of, it was all in his head, and then he was could just, which I find astounding. I mean, maybe there are many writers. No, I think who there are relatively few. Like Muriel Spark, I know, was the sort of she wrote novellas primarily was the sort of writer who would imagine the whole thing in her head and then write it down in a go but I think it's quite unusual I think it requires some weird addition to your memory yeah and also just like confidence like yeah I like yeah. I, I like I also think probably working on computers has made people even less likely to write that way than ever before because we have now the opportunity to erase and move things around so right. we don't we compose on the laptop rather than composing ahead of time in our heads right but even so so Mohammed Shire recently found these this box full of 
manuscripts and other things by, by Nagim Mahfouz, who was oh, yeah. notoriously a manuscript shredder, you know. He Wait, didn't Nagim want... Mahfouz is a manuscript shredder? Yeah, he didn't want to leave behind old manuscripts. And oh. a lot of things were lost also for nonsense reasons, like, you know, um, Children of the Alley, Alad Haretna was was originally, it couldn't be published. So it was originally published in newspaper, serialized form. Originally, they didn't want to, it was too long. And then it was published in serialized form. And then people, various authority figures got angry about the book. And then it was uh, banned in Egypt. Then without his permission, it appeared in Lebanon 10 years on. Um, so uh, in looking for the manuscript, the original, uh, Ahram says they don't have it. The the uh, Lebanese publisher, which it seems like they were dealing with the original because they mm. knew things. They didn't make some mistakes that were made in the newspaper printing. They said they don't have it. So this was originally Muhammad was looking to try and find where is this manuscript. But he found um, he found some handwritten manuscripts. Of Mah- Mahfouz was a crosser-outer. Where it did not he find a, them? He, it was one box that was... Uh, so he... Co- among, so he asked the original uh, translator who worked in, in English, and he said he didn't have it. He'd asked Mahfouz for it, and Mahfouz said Al-Haram lost it. And he'd asked Darad Adib, who, had, who printed it in, in Lebanon. They didn't have it. So he, he and then he asked uh, um, Uncle Sum, who's the one living daughter. And she said, no, we don't have anything. Everything we have is already known. Everybody's seen it. And then she was like, wait. And, you know, he kept pressing her but you know i i mean just from, like from do his, you have any manuscripts lying do you have around? any stuff come on and then she's like wait but there is this one box i mean i'm recreating based on right. talking to Muhammad about this uh well, there is this one box and so he so like, can i come see the box and you know it, in it is um yeah apparently handwritten manuscripts also this collection of 18 lost stories that's um, going to be brought out on Dece- this December 11th by Dada Saki in, in, again, Lebanon, which was a big to-do because um, Egyptians were like, what? His publisher was always Dada Shuruq, which had the rights to all of his works before he died, and AUC Press. So it, this is going to be published by Dada Saki and Saki Press in, in London next year. Roger Allen is translating it. But Mohammed Shahir also told me, I've, so this is a collection... Roger refuses to call it short stories. He thinks it's like scenes from a novel that was never quite mm. fully developed. Um, they're in any case interlinked sequent narratives, interlinked sequential narratives. Um, Muhammad Shire also told me, well, there's something else I found that will, that's big, a bigger deal than these 18 interlinked pieces. And I was like, well, what is, is it a novel? What did you find? And, you know, he sent me smiley face, smiley face. So I don't know what, there's something else yet to come out of this box as well. I hope it's good. I hope it's not sort of like a little bit like scraping the bottom of the mafuzi You mean, so I did ask. I was like, like, is it like the, I asked Roger Allen who's translating it. Because, you know, I can't, nobody can see it before December 11th, which is when it's being published by Dadasaki in uh, Beirut. Well, Roger has it. Um, uh, And Mohammed obviously has it. Muhammad was very excited about it. Yasmina Jasati, the agent, uh, the literary agent who's dealing with it, was very excited about it. Roger was excited, but he really didn't know whether he was excited because he's like Mafuzian and like he's mm. read the entire Ufa and this is so f- 
such a fascinating piece of his work that fits if you read everything else. But Yasmina says, I haven't read very much Mahfouz and I thought it was fascinating. I mean, they're, they're definitely fictional. It's not like those juvenilia essays that, um, that were published by Ginko. Um, so I don't, I don't know yet what to make of it. I'm really looking forward to seeing it for myself and then also to know what it is that Mohammed is holding out on us currently. Well, yeah, it must be quite something to be the guy who has an unpublished has... Mahfouz manuscript. So. Right. Well, he wrote the introduction to the Arabic one, uh, edition that's coming out. Well, he just he's writing also this trilogy about Mahfouz. Um, and the second one, which he's working on now, is about the manuscripts. Yeah, it seems like he's come up with some wonderful new observations. Too, must... And he's really doing some great research in the way that the previous generation was just sort of, we knew Mahfouz and we're telling stories about his lifetime. Mm. Mohammed is, I mean, he met Mahfouz, but this is much more about um, really researching, really trying to find these manuscripts, really like doing his, doing his work. Yeah, I mean, as a scholar, too, it must be super interesting to have that kind of access that he seems to have to yeah, yeah, definitely. the family and the work and whatever. And right. I actually, yeah, I have, I mean, it, it, I, I feel like there's, there, there is a sort of second wave of interesting work being done on Mahfouz. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm very excited to read Mohammed's both his trilogy about Mahfouz and whatever new things he's come up with as well. Cool. Well, maybe we'll, for our end of the year book list, which I think we're going to discuss next episode, mm -hmm. um, I think I would definitely put uh, these Buanani books on my list. And then I think... Yes, because it did happen this year. I, when it gets to the end, I become very confused. Like, what did I read this year? If, it, if oh, I didn't I read know. it in the last two months. I have to go back. I know, I know. <laughs> but also, I mean, uh, so the so the sex will come out It will come out on December, December 11th, which is so, his birthday. Oh, my goodness. What a production. But so, um, yeah, maybe maybe that can go on it, on it too. This is, this, is both, this is like exciting developments. And then it's just... I would say nice to see people's work uh, like endure or reappear yes. or be rediscovered yes. um, in this sort of constant uh, battle with forgetfulness that like all writers are engaged in. Yes. I mean, not that Mahfouz has anything Mahfouz to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> he's okay. Quite forgotten. Yeah, yeah, he's all right. He's more the 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 opposite they'll always be looking for for things um but it's but maybe for him to be remembered in different ways for his memory not to just sort of ossify into this like the single trilogy. image but for it to go right. on developing and getting you know complicated and and because he's a bit of a myth more than a so it's good to have people right. really again digging into him him and his work absolutely all right, well, shall we call it uh let's call it a day. A, a late morning there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we can't really call it quits since it's only about 12:30 or something. Yeah, no, I think we can. <laughs> um and uh and uh, so we'll be back soon and I think we will be talking about uh, some of our some of our favorite books the yes. next time around. End of year things, yes. So we can jog our memories in the meantime in the next few weeks that are like, go back over. Yes. 
Yeah. I'm also in the process of gathering this sort of year end. I'm always the last person to publish the oh, me Arab, too. Arab no. author's favorites no. of the year. No, me too. I'm doing and the same thing. Of course, the thing. New York Times, and The Guardian, LRB, everybody else's NPR has already come out with their best of list like, I don't know, a month ago. But where does that leave books that are published in November and December? Well, they're I mean, if you're a big publishing house, of course, your 2018 titles have been out to reviewers for for ages already. Mm. Uh, it's it's the small publishing houses that get overlooked, as usual. Well, look, here's to... I know I'm also putting together a book list that I, it's not is not ready yet. Yeah, you know, here, <laughs> here, here, I think, you know, here's to our procrastinating ways. <laughs> yes, cheers. It allows us to be more comprehensive in the end. Absolutely, and to be more attuned to all the small publishers who are doing amazing work. That's why, that's why, that's the real reason, really. <laughs> not because I'm disorganized. You're not disorganized. You're just overworked. Mm, maybe. All right. Well, it was uh, great talking as usual. Yes. Lovely talking to you as well. And uh, we will be back in a couple weeks. All right. See you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.